Welcome to another episode of The Renaissance Life, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of creativity, mastery, and a meaningful life. I am your podcaster in crime, Josh Wagner. Good to be here today. Today's episode is a conversation with the wonderful Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is the co-founder and senior maverick at Wired. He is also the co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, an organization that champions long-term thinking. Kevin Kelly has also written a number of best-selling books, including The Inevitable, an excellent book, in my opinion, that guides you through, quote, 12 technological imperatives that will shape the next 30 years and transform our lives, end quote. And I highly recommend his newest book, Excellent Advice for Living, subtitled Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. It's a fantastic read, chock full of wisdom and insight. I'm super grateful that Kevin was generous with his time to have a conversation with me. I hope you get as much out of this episode as I did. KK.org is where you can find more information about Kevin's work. You can also find links discussed in the show notes or at renaissancelife.com KK. Also, if you'd like to download an action guide featuring question prompts and action steps based on this episode, go to renaissancelife.com and join. Last thing, if there are any guests you'd like me to reach out and interview, send me an email at josh at renaissancelife.com. Alrighty, here's my conversation with Kevin Kelly. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. My pleasure. So I have a million questions for you. Sure thing. I'd love to start with play in particular. One trait that I really admire from you is you have this sense of wonder and playfulness that comes across in your mm -hmm. work and your interviews. So I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on like taking life seriously, but not too seriously? And do you have advice on adding more play and childlike wonder to life? Yeah, that's, that's a really great way of framing it. I had a friend, Michael Schrager, who wrote a book called Serious Play, which was perfect. I like that idea of taking play seriously and doing it intentionally in a kind of the construct of getting things done. And so that's the attitude I have taken, which is that there's also the, the famous flow state is the reverse is where you're playing so intensely that it does like work. So yeah, you're right. I, I haven't really thought about that, but I guess the really that distinction is not very large in my mind. I try to construct my days and my projects to do things that make my work into play and my play into work. And I think when creative people are doing their best, if you're a songwriter writing a song, is that work or is that play? I don't know. But obviously there are things that there are aspects of work that don't really look like play. If you are a furniture maker, you've got to do some sanding and there's nothing playful about sanding. If you are a, a, a chef being creative, there's prep work, which isn't very playful, but there certainly should be some aspects of play in the most creative things that we do. And we want to do more of those creative things. So yeah, I think the idea of serious play, which is how do you, or what are the tricks or the tips or the methods 
or the mindset for introducing that into our things. There's one element I've noticed in that kind of gamification of trying to introduce some element of play into things that are wrote where you can turn it into a game. And that to some degree is, there is, it is playful where you make a game out of it. I think that's a legitimate avenue. There are things where you deliberately try and do things differently, again, to prevent yourself from getting to a rut and also trying to explore alternative ways. I have a friend, maybe he's more than a friend, like a mentor, Stuart Brand, the inventor of the Holworth catalog, and his little game, I guess you could call it, playful, is that whenever he's talking about something he knows very well and has talked about a million times, he tries not to repeat himself. So like he invented the whole earth catalog and I've witnessed hundreds or thousands of people coming up to him talking about the whole earth catalog. And when he's talking about it, each time he's talking about a different way I've never heard before. I'm talking about a book right now that I'm doing and it's all I can do to not say the phrases that seem to work really well. He would never use that phrase again. It would be a brilliant phrase. And then that would be the last time you'd ever hear it because he was going to try and say it completely different the next time. And so that is a playful attitude, playful thing, just in everyday life where you don't repeat yourself. You're going to playfully try out something. It may not work as well. And that's the cost. The cost is that this time when you say it, it didn't have quite the impact because you just was not as good. And instead of reverting back to the old reliable saw, he's going to keep trying a different thing. And that to me is a playful way to approach things. I love that. The couple of examples that you brought up, woodworking and being a chef, like doing prep work, there's almost a meditative quality about that sure. kind of work as well. Sure. It's meditative, but I'm not sure I'd put playful, maybe in the greater context, maybe there, there is a list of things besides play that are useful to bring to work, there's play, and then there's meditative stuff. But there is one bit of advice in the book, I think it's in there, I can't remember now, which I, stuff I put in or took out, that you want the, the productivity folks, the, the, this idea of productivity being really productive is a little bit misleading sometimes because it isn't necessarily that we want to always reduce the amount of time that we're spending on things that we have to do. We actually want to find the kinds of things where we want to keep doing them for as long as possible. So we do saying becoming productive, like getting through the tasks really fast is one thing, but actually what we really want are tasks that we never want to stop. We want to take as long as possible. So you you want to switch to those as much as possible mm -hmm. rather than just keep working on trying to get through things as productively as possible. No, you want to have something where you want to spend as much time as possible. Absolutely. And you mentioned your book, Excellent Advice for Living. I absolutely love it. One thing you've talked about related to that is making the main thing the main thing. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a little saw in Silicon Valley, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. The main thing is to get to keep the main thing, the main thing. And so that's about focus. It's like saying, look, the problem of today's world and even in the startup world is that there's ever expanding possibilities and choices and opportunities. 
And when you're starting out, the main thing is to get the main thing, meaning that you really need to focus on that main opportunity because it's just because you'll have so many opportunities come up. And if you're an opportunist, it's like, how can you resist? You have to. One aspect of that is coming up with ideas and having a lot of ideas. Do you have like a protocol on selecting ideas mm -hmm. or what you say yes or no to? I do. And it's something I literally wish I'd known earlier. I think for most people, there's a holy trinity of kind of overlapping Venn diagram of things that they love doing, things that they're good at, and things that people would pay for that there's value. And if there's some overlap of those three things in that little sweet spot, that holy trinity where you, you're really good at it, you love doing it, and you're getting paid to do it, that is the kinds of things you're going to do. But I think there's another level beyond that, another circle maybe intersecting it, and something that I use a lot now all the time, which is, could anybody else do this? Is, could I imagine someone else doing it? This is a really great idea for a book. I'd be really good at it. I would love doing it. I could get a nice advance to it. Can I imagine anyone else doing this? And if the answer is yes, then that's so strike against me. That's, I'm probably not going to do it because I only want to do the things now that only I can do. And when I do those, it's easy versus hard and there's no competition. So I can, I don't have to be in a hurry and it's usually the best stuff, my best work because I'm the only at that point. And so that is a criteria that they will ask and really commonly like, can I imagine someone else doing it? Is there someone else who's already doing this? Is this someone else? Is this something that someone else can do? And by the way, that's one of the, the reasons why, even though there are say a lot of problems in technology in the world, and it is important to address those problems. Besides the fact that I'm optimistic, I don't address those problems because so many other people do it better than I do. I don't need to do that. That's not what I'm here for. It's not that I don't value it or think it's important. It's just that other people can do that. And so other people have more trouble with the optimistic side. And that's the thing that I gravitate to and that I'm good at. Mm. I wanted to talk to you about optimism, actually. You've written about it. There's some great articles that you've written on optimism. And I really enjoyed your recent conversation with Tim Ferriss and the distinction y'all were jamming with on active optimism versus mm -hmm. passive optimism. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have any recommendations on how, like, how to cultivate more optimism in your life. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is just is to try to change your time horizon. The longer you can look back into the past and the more you look, so you look at it objectively and scientifically and at the actual evidence, the more you understand of the tremendous amount of progress that we have in the world and that most of the things that are filling our world today with goodness were created by somebody who believed that this improbable thing could really come true. So basically our present has been shaped by the optimists of the past. And if you took a, if you take a longer view of the future, first of all, you can just accomplish so much more in 10 years than over a one year not just 10 times more, but just substantially more. And a longer view allows the perspective, allow the vision to overcome significant 
setbacks and downturns. It's kind of like the stock market. If you are holding for the long term, 20 years, even severe downturns are just, they're just things that are overcome. And that allows you to be optimistic about the general direction that we're going in. So I find elevating the time horizon to the long past and the long future, what we call the long now, expanding that is, is one thing that really helps be optimistic. And I think another thing is to focus again, not just the problems, but the way in which our ability to solve problems is expanding. Okay. And that's, again, that's my little riff about it's not, the reason why I'm optimistic is in part, not because I think our problems are smaller, less significant, less important than people think, but because I believe that our ability to solve the problems is increasing much better than we realize. And so that sense of kind of trusting the future and understanding that we're, we're growing really significantly in our ability to understand, detect problems, measure them, and even deal with them. And so that's one way to become more optimistic. Excellent. You mentioned the Long Now Foundation. I'm curious the origins of that. So the, it came actually from a piece that we published in Wired from Danny Hillis. Danny Hillis, who was a guy who invented the parallel computing machine called the Connection Machine way back in the 80s. 80s, yeah. And he's a polymath, a genius, and he had this idea. He had a complaint that the this was like in 1990, so we'll say 95, that for him growing up, the future had always been the year 2000. And the 2000 was only five years away, and there was still nobody was talking about anything beyond the year 2000. And he felt that the future was shrinking in that sense, and he wanted to expand the future. So he had this idea of a clock, which was going to be like a computer that would tick for once a year and talk every 100 years, and then every 1,000 years a cuckoo would come out. And that this kind of long-term, long-range clock would help us think about a long-term future. So Stuart Brand, whom I worked with at the Whole Earth Catalog, seized on the idea and said, Danny, let's make an institution to build the clock. We're actually going to build a clock. And Ed Stewart wrote a book where he paired the idea of a 10,000-year library next to the clock. That there were, these would be these kind of monuments to remind us of long-term thinking and long-range perspectives. And so he, Danny Stewart, me, and a couple others, Peter Schwartz at GBN, who wrote a book about scenarios, we made a nonprofit institution to promote long-term perspective. And later on, we would say long-term responsibility and long-term imagination. And that's the origin. It was, and then we made a version of the clock a prototype that was now in the science, in the science museum in England. And there's now a clock, clock one, the first clock, first of many, that's almost finished inside a mountain in East Texas. And it's financed by Jeff Bezos. And this is 500 feet. There's a tunnel 500 feet down. The clock is hanging. In that, there's chimes that ring every day at noon that for 10,000 10, years make a different melody designed by Brian Eno. So 
it's a monumental thing. And when you visit it, my overarching impression is that this clock has always been inside the mountain. It feels this clock is like ancient heart beating in a mountain forever. So, there, so it, it does this, it's, it's mythic. It does this thing of thinking about what should we be doing over that kind of, over the next hundred years at least. And so that's the purpose of the clock is again, is to remind us about the long term. I love that. That's super cool. You mentioned polymath. Curious your thoughts on thinking and the desire to have multiple passions. Yeah, we're, we're complicated human beings with many different dimensions. One of the, I think one of the, what's the word I want? Misguided aspects of AI is this emphasis on one single dimension, which is IQ, the same kind of extremism in entrepreneurism, which is the value only the, the amount of money that people have. Those are just very narrow bits of, and I think we're complex and that's one of the benefits I think we have over AI and for a long time is that we are going to be complicated. We do have more than one thing we're trying to optimize in our life, which we should, I think, not just money, health, friendships, satisfaction, curiosity, play, there's lots of things. And so not everybody is going to be so one dimension. I think some of the most creative people I know and most successful have multiple dimensions to them. And they may not all be visible publicly, but they are there. And I think that source of being interested in lots of different things and even trying to go multiple ways at once is an important part of doing things differently. There's a famous story of Steve Jobs wasting his time taking calligraphy at Reed College when there was utterly not any use at all for it. He was just interested in it. It was complete. It looked nothing like success. And so later on though, it was essential and instrumental in him becoming interested in PostScript and making fonts with a computer and his insistence that the early Macintosh have ability to do fonts because of his frivolous interest in calligraphy. And so I'm a big believer in, in, in pursuing more with a single interest. You of course have to balance that with focus and getting things done, mm -hmm. but that's what life is. It's a balance between different trade-offs. You mentioned AI briefly in the previous conversation. And I think I heard somewhere that you doing like a daily AI yeah. art piece. Yeah. How's that experience been? How, what have you learned about yourself? Oh, there's a lot to say about it. First of all, I am perfectly content to co-sign the results because I spent hours and hours working with these AI to produce them. It's not a matter of just clicking a button. It's like photography. <laughs> I was a photographer and the early painters thought, oh, the photographer, they just, you just have to click the button and you're done. Not really. You're, it's a lot of work. Yeah, you can, but you're not getting anything really great. And working with the AI is it's like photography where you are exploring a space and you're going in and you're looking for it and you're moving around and you're having to work with the, the AI to get in the right position to get this picture. 
And so that's the first thing is that there's a lot of, a lot more work involved than it appears. And that's why some people are just really good at that because they've spent a thousand, several thousand or 10,000 hours already doing it. And then the second thing is that I had a realization recently, which was that, so it's very easy to get the AIs to do something. It's really hard to get them to obey you, go where you want to go. And I had a realization, I've been trying to make it do art that I could see in my mind, I just couldn't get them to do it. And I, and the realization was, aha, here's what it is. The thing about these AIs, the great boom that we're in is that they like the internet, which went in the nineties from the command line, text only, very boring. And then there was the big bang of the graphical user interface and the web. And now suddenly everybody got it because you had a graphical user interface to the internet. This is what's happening right now with AI. We have a conversational user interface to the AI. The AIs are not that much different than they were a couple of years ago, but now we can interface them with the conversation, which is a very human way of doing things. And so, but, but, but those large language models that are the engine of this conversational user interface, it, their language. And so what that means is that there are, there are kinds of art that they can't do because there's no words that we could use to get them there. They're leashed, they're tied to language. And so I've been trying to get them to do things that there's no language for that. So there's art, some great art that you can't put into words, meaning that there's no AI that's going to be able to get there. So there's a whole bunch of possible pictures that these AIs with their large language models and language prompts are never going to be able to make. And so. They're now working on other kinds of interfaces. Maybe you can draw, maybe you can sing, whatever it is. But what that means though, is that there's still plenty of room today anyway, for artists working, because if you're trying to do art that's beyond language, beyond description, AIs aren't going to be able to help you there at this point. Interesting. I know there's a lot of fear and anxiety around that. But that's, I feel like that right there is really helpful. You're not, it's a limit. At least there's still like an aspect of humanity that needs to imagine. And, you know, right now I'm playing around with music, AI music generators. And oh, interesting. It'll be, the, it'll be the same kind of thing. There, there will be the interface to the AI will limit what it can do musically. Right now, our human limit is primarily going to be in the instruments, primarily, that, which is the interface that humans have. So you can theoretically make sounds or music that transcends those things, but without the interface, how do you get there? Right. And so, so that. I think what will happen is that just like the computerized chess playing in Go, the AI has changed the way that humans play the game. I think these AIs making images and making music will change even how 
we humans make art and music. We will respond to it and they'll help us imagine different ways of doing it that we haven't already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, that's what I've experienced personally with just using mid-journey, playing mm -hmm. around, making some crazy weird photos, which are super fun, just playing around with different like mediums. And I'm excited about the possibilities, particularly around like being able to create more for somebody who has a lot of ideas, there could be, I could see a future where you could spend one week making a video game, another week, like outlining a novel, there's building an app, there's like an endless amount of possibilities there. Oh yeah. And there are, these new tools will empower individuals to, like they have with video, to produce things that normally in the past would have taken a whole team, a lot of money. and. I've long said that's where the real frontier is in these image generators is not on the 2D picture. It's in making videos and movies and world building, which normally is required. It's not been in the purview of a single person. Writing a novel, you can do it by, by yourself. You can write a song by yourself. You could do a book by yourself, but you couldn't ever do a real movie by yourself, but you will be able to with the AI tools. And that would be huge because first of all, it'll produce huge amounts of crap, terrible stuff, which is good. It's the only way you're gonna get the genius stuff out, but just like YouTube, right? So that, that'd be very exciting to, to see what happens there. Yeah. I'm also excited about the education aspect. Yeah. Like, like what? Khan Academy is doing, for example, yep. like ability to learn more quickly is interesting. Definitely, 100%. Mm -hmm. To talk about your book here for a second, like I said earlier, I, it's fantastic. And I feel like it'll be a daily driver for me because I could get bits of wisdom at different points in my life. Yeah. But I'm curious if there's any particular pieces of advice that you wish people would focus more on? Who are my favorite children? I think, well, yeah, it's hard to say because there are, there's some parenting advice. Not everybody has children. There's some kind of career advice aimed at the people who are young. There's some practical advice, but I would say I'm just, I'm just opening the book right here just randomly. And I like, I like all of it. What can I say? So when someone tells you something is wrong, they're usually right. But when they tell you how to fix it, they're usually wrong. That's a little bit of that kind of balancing where we have to pay attention to what other people say. Sometimes we have to ignore it and you have to figure out in between, but this is one of the rules of thumb that I use is like, when people notice something is wrong, they're usually right about that. Something's not working. But the solution to it is much, much harder to envision. And they're usually wrong about that. And that's just because generally failures are much more probable and successes are improbable. So the failure is much easier to see, but the actual solution, the improbable thing is really hard to see. So if someone tells you something wrong, they're usually right. If they're telling you how to fix it, they're usually wrong. That's good. The second one is on the same page. 
You're only as young as the last time you changed your mind. I first heard that from Timothy Leary, and he was always going on about being able to change your mind and that, that necessity of staying young because you're changing your mind and having that ability to be open to changing your mind. And then the third one on the same page is when you're hitchhiking, look like the person you want to pick you up. So I've done a lot of hitchhiking and that really does work. All right. So yeah, if you want to be picked up by some <laughs> drunk guy in a car, then yeah, you've got to look at Kobo. But if you want to be picked up by somebody who's going to take you to lunch, put on a tie. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I've got a few here that I've marked. Okay. So I'm curious if you want to riff on them a little bit. Sure. This one, this is the best time ever to make something. Yeah. None of the greatest, coolest creations 20 years from now have been invented yet. You are not too late. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is, the, there's two reasons why this is the best time. One is from the view of history from the past, there's never been as good a set of tools available to everybody than today. There's never been more information about how to do things, how to make things so you can learn than today. There's never been easier, more available money and capital floating around than today. There's just so many ways in which today is better than any day in the past to start to make something. Then if you turn around and look into the future, it's also the best time. They'll look back in 20 years from now to this day in 2023 and saying, man, I wished I was working back then because at that time today, there are no AI experts compared to what they'll be in 30 years. There are no prompt engineers compared to what they'll be in 30 years. There's no, there's no experts in the, meta, the metaverse, virtual reality, compared to what they'll be in 30 years. And so, so, yeah, this would have been a time to start those things because there was no competition and there were no experts compared to where we're going. And so this is literally the best time ever, both from the past and the future, to make something. And the good things, the greatest things, haven't been made yet, so you're not late. Do you have any recommends on catching or riding some of these technological waves? You say riding, surfing them, you mean? Yeah. 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 Meaning like trying things, being open to. Yeah. The only way you get to steer these things is by using. You have to use. You can think about these all you want. It doesn't think you will only take you so far. It's action. It's getting there via action. and. These new AI tools are just fantastic because they're basically free. You can pay a little bit more to have access, but it's a minor amount of money and you can just be working on it day and night and becoming literally the AI whisperer, becoming the expert. And those 10,000 hours that you'd put into it would make a huge difference. And the code is available. There's open source code all over the place. So. That's just one example. That's an easy example. It could be other things that you want to start up. Maybe it's, again, AI is going to be a well-trodden path. There are going to be a lot of people going down there. That, that 
definition of success is going to be occupied. But if you go in a different direction of something that people are not, a lot of people are chasing, whatever that might be, that's where you might be slightly ahead of the technology. You might be waiting for the technology to catch up or people take things to take a technology that exists already and they reuse it for something else that nobody ever thought of. That's, that's what Uber was doing in some senses. GPS had been around for a long time, but they were just using GPS in a new way that was just really fabulous. I don't know. I don't have any special tips on writing it other than to say, other than using it yourself, using it and understanding the harms and the goods and, and what it's good at and what it's not good at will tell you more than anything else. Like VR, AR, you can buy a headset and you could be incredible. You could be exploring all kinds of things that you could even be patenting things right now in AR and VR. Just because you could be exploring ways to do things like misdirected walking. Do you know about that? I don't think so. This is a little little example. So this is about VR, virtual reality. We have a goggles on, okay? And it's dark. It's not the uh, mirror world or the metaverse where you see through. It's VR. It's VR in a space where you're going to walk around. So they're using it for games. And so the idea is you want to have a game where you're walking around in this and there's some kind of correspondence with the things that you're feeling with the goggles on because you can't see anything. And what, so the idea is that you would see a flaming torch and you'd reach out and you would hold, you would be holding a wooden pole. So it feels like it's a torch. And as you move it around, it's doing all the things that the torch would do in VR. Okay. So there's a way in which you can take a small room and make it a big room because what they would do is when you're walking, you would see this thing, you were going, and then when you would turn, you would, your view would, you turn to the world and you would walk in that direction. But what they're doing is they're, the programmers are slightly cheating you. So you think you're walking in a straight line, but you're actually walking in a circle. I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> That's really smart. Really smart. (laughs) Yeah. Or they do other things like you're reaching for different bottles, but there's actually just one bottle there. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. Really interesting. Okay. So my whole point of that is just that somebody could, you could be figuring those things out really early on by exploring and doing cool stuff. And you could just be way ahead of the curve in terms of being a pioneer in that. Because just because you wanted to play around, because you want to kind of fool around, because you want to see what would happen if I did this and what would happen if I do that. And they could be even patentable ideas that, that eventually someone would come along and say, yeah, we need to do that. So my only point was is that you could take existing technologies today and you could play to, to go back to our beginning. You could be playing around with them just to fool around and to see what's possible. And you could, you would be the pioneer. And 20 years from now, they would say, yeah, I wish I could have just bought a pair of VR goggles and just explored to see what it was been so cheap to have done. Why didn't I do that? I love that. <laughs> Let's see. Another quote that really resonates with me right now from your book, three things you need, the ability to not give up something till it mm-hmm. works, 
the ability to give up something that does not work, and the trust in other people to help you distinguish between the two. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I preach the gospel of not being the best, but being the only. But that, the thing, the weird thing about being the only or becoming the only is that you can only become the only with the help of everybody else. You can only, you can't become yourself, fully yourself, by yourself. You need a whole community to make an individual. So there's this paradox there. And so on this trip, on the kind of the journey of deciding whether to abandon something or to give up or to never give up, you may not be able to solve that yourself. You really do need to rely on other people around you because we are so opaque to ourselves. We just are the human psyche, the human mind is just deliberately opaque to itself. So you can't, you can't mess up. It it doesn't, you don't have direct access to the controls of it because we were just completely, it's like having access to our source code. We were just completely screwing up if we had direct access to it. So we're deliberately obscure and we find it really hard to figure out what our actual motivations are and why we do things. That's on purpose in terms of evolution. And that, but that makes it really hard for us to know ourselves, to be able to go on this journey of becoming who we should be, who we want to be the best you. We need outside views because we don't have enough of a view internally to get there. So sometimes you have to hear the data, like what doesn't work with people. Other times you have to ignore it, but discerning those is going to rely on other people to help you say, that's definitely something that's real. Everybody sees the problem with you or about this. Okay. All right. That's a bit of data that that you need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. How do you go about cultivating that type of tight knit friendship? friendships yeah. and uh, people who want to enable each other there's yeah there's there a true friend will ask you for nothing and give you everything so most f- real friendships should be on that basis where there's nothing really expected either way or just other than just you you're being there going beyond that to colleagues the people that you work with and customers and clients can also tell you you also need them for this kind of thing and family where you have no choice about. That's the thing, about, that's the definition of the family is you're stuck with them, okay? And so the other bits of wisdom I, that I talk about in this book about being generous and about being never, be, you can't be too kind, right? Those are all things that are necessary to maintain those kind of conversations. And then like an example would be that the rule of three in a conversation, which is my bit of advice. I think I got it from Esther Perel this legendary therapist who like, when you're having a tough conversation, the rule three is that you need to ask three times and listen for the responses to get down to the real basic fundamental reason for something. And that the other person who is divulging actually needs you there to listen and needs you to ask them because they cannot say it on their own. They cannot get there. They require a willing person to listen, to be able to lift it out of themselves because they don't know, they don't know it. 
So you are, it's a co-generated thing. The listener, by demanding to go three levels, is actually assisting the person who's revealing this. So it's a team effort to reveal what they're really feeling because they may not even know themselves. And so that kind of a stance of being willing to listen, to ask the three levels to, to be actively listening is part of how you cultivate people that will tell you things that you need to hear. Yeah, I feel like that's huge. One aspect semi-related to that being like a friend to yourself is you, you write about learn how to be alone without being lonely. Solitude is essential for creativity. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a difference between, you know, being alone and being lonely. And aloneness, solitude is essential for creativity because when, when ideas are first born, they're very fragile. That's another bit of advice I have in the book talking about the creative process where you want it to divorce the genesis cycle from the critic cycle, from the judge cycle. Both are absolutely essential to make anything really good. But during the initial process of the cycle where you're generating something, where it's genesis, that it immediately at that moment, it's a very fragile thing that can be easily suffocated or shouted down or judged inadequate. And you have to have the space to work on it without judgment, without criticism, without interference from outside. And that's where the solitude comes in, where you are protecting those initial ideas to see if they can grow into something. And then at some point, you're going to come back and you're going to be the harshest disseminator and kind of just ruthlessly killing them all off, except for the ones that are worth keeping. But you have to kind of separate those steps. And so that in Genesis step needs solitude, isolation at some level. Another really good one that I, I need to think about more is your best job will be one that you were unqualified for because it stretches you. In fact, mm -hmm. only apply to jobs you are unqualified for. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular advice on approaching that process of trying to apply for an unqualified job? My other little bit of job application advice in the book, I think, again, I might not get exactly right, but it was... If you are, if you're going to a place, to a, let's say a boss, and your main reason for the job is that you need the job, then you're just giving that boss another problem. You're the problem for the boss. But if you go to the boss and say, hey, I know you have problems. Here are the problems I know you have. I will solve those problems for you. You're hired because that's what the boss has. He has nothing but problems. I have a problem here, a problem there. Can you solve that problem? If you're coming to me and say, I need a job, you're just, you just add it to my problem list. I don't want it. But so you have to think like the boss, which is what is their problems? Can you solve any of their problems? And then you're golden at that point. And so that flip of thinking like the boss and solving the problems is that then whether you're qualified or not, it's immaterial. It's no, you're going to solve my problems. You're hired. I was just talking to a friend who was telling me about at the time he went to apply for a, a job at a restaurant and the guy said, yeah, it's great. When can you start now? 
literally just he had a problem. He needed he needs someone in the restaurant like right now. Just like the guy was within the next second, he was like at work there. He had a problem. He was going to solve the problem. Can you cook? So yes. So the issues of qualification is that's my advice then to people who are looking for jobs is find a place where you think you can solve someone's problem, whatever it is. You're a musician. I don't know. They have a bar at night. They need to have customers. They want to have music. Can you provide it? Can you solve that problem? The problem is that the musicians were unreliable. Okay. I'm going to solve your problem because I'm going to be here no matter what, every single day. You don't have to ever think about that. I'm going to solve your problem. So if you approach it that way, then I think the issues of qualifications don't matter. And again, you want to do something where you think you can you're confident that you can do it even though you've never done it before. And that's really great because you're going to grow in that way. That's great. We're getting close to time here. Yeah. I got a couple of random grab bag full of questions. If you could master three skills instantly, what would they be and why? <clears throat> oh, speak Chinese, number one. Oh, I've been working good. on it for a long time. I understand, but you know, speaking it is another level because of the tones second skill 3d modeling i just keep bumping my head on that getting better but man it's slow the other skill boy i'm not very good at skiing i would enjoy it more if i was even better at skiing that's a fun one i like it yeah also in the book you talk about probability and statistics mm as being something good to learn. I'm curious if you have any other meta skills that you would recommend. Oh, I see, just in general. The one I've been preaching about for a long time is optimizing your ability to learn. So learning how to learn and yourself, to learning how you yourself learns best and optimizing that, that ability because that's basically all you're going to be doing for the rest of your life is learning new skills. And so how do you learn new things best? How much time do you need in between reps, how are you more audible or more visual? Just knowing and optimizing that skill of learning, the meta skill of learning, that's by far the best skill. And by the way, almost nobody has this. It's not taught anywhere. I don't know it myself, even though I've been working on this for a long time. It, there's, I can't find a single course available anywhere in the world about the, the skill of learning how to learn. But, and so there you go, right there. If you want, if, if entrepreneur, if you want a really great something, figure out, develop the ultimate course on learning how to learn. That's something that the world really needs. Yeah. Do you have any, I'm sure you do, but are there any particular books that stand out that have made a big impact on your life? I mentioned one called Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. It's actually a hard book to read. You only really need to read the first chapter. You may not even need to read that. You can probably read a summary somewhere. But the idea is very essential, which is there's two kinds of games in the world. There's games where there's winners or losers. Those are finite games. It's very important to play by the rules and be fair in those games. And most sports, most other kind of games are that kind of finite games. There's, then there's infinite games. And infinite games are a whole different subset and there are no winners or losers. The point of the game is to keep the game going and get as many people playing as possible. 
And that way, everybody's a winner as long as the game is going. And the only way the game continues going is by changing the rules constantly. You're remaking the game. That's what makes it infinite. And so those are two different mindsets. And as much as possible, I always head for the places where the infinite game is being played. Winners and losers is basically for losers. And so the infinite game is all about winners. And the idea is you want to keep the game going as long as possible. The people who run an organization or a company or their lives and the idea that they're on an infinite game, trying to bring as many people in, keep the game going as much as possible. That's where I will always head because the upside is infinite. It definitely resonates with long-term thinking. Exactly. Here's a silly one. What songs do you sing when you're alone? I am unable to sing. That's okay. But we did do lullabies for our kids to help them sleep. And there were a couple of hymns, including Amazing Grace, that I would just repeat to them. I would hum, since I can't sing, I would hum the hymn. I wonder if it's the same, hum and hymn. And Interesting. But there is one other musical thing, which is that when I'm writing, I play the same song on a loop. And I know of other writers who do that. And some authors will have a song just for that book that they're working on, that project. And then they'll switch it out to another one for another project, which seems, I haven't tried that. That seems like a pretty cool thing that I might try. And the idea of playing things in a loop, I think for me anyway, it works as a way of focusing. Do you mind if I ask what the song that? So it was a Russian Orthodox Gregorian chant called the Hymn of the Cherubim. And I think it was done by the Bulgarian men's choir. Okay, cool. And I haven't listened to it. I'll have to check it out. Sure. You can probably find it. <laughs> what are some big lessons or values that you've learned from your parents? Could be work-related or life in general. Yeah, that's a good question. I think my parents mostly helped me in my parenting wisdom. They were mostly very fair, but very supportive of my peculiar weirdnesses as a kid. They weren't indulgent, but they were supportive. And I was a little outside the norm and they recognized that. And without, again, without being indulgent, supported what I needed to do. And I don't mean by giving me money because I didn't get any money from them to do my projects, but they were supportive in, in, in terms of encouragement and interest. And like my, my dad knew it was in science. So like he would, he worked for a company to bring back some books that would be about science so I could read the books, stuff like that. And that, I think I learned from the, the value of that kind of support the constant support behind things as being some of the kids really treasure, especially mm -hmm. me. I know we're coming up on time here. Yeah. I got two, two last ones for you. What's one question you would recommend someone take away and ask themselves based on this conversation or from your book? Right. So one of my bits of advice in the book is whenever you find yourself asking a question of what you should do next. You want to be asking yourself, what do I want to become? Don't work for someone you don't want to become. So this question of what do I want to become? Where, what would a better me look like? And that's, that 
sense of becoming, of, of moving towards something, of trying to become your true self, your full self, you want to be asking, what does that look like? What's one action you would recommend to the audience? One action. The greatest therapy you could do for free is to write down three things that you're grateful for at any time and to recognize that no matter where you are in stage in life and how rich or poor you are and how harsh it is that you're still incredibly lucky to acknowledging your luck even being born and so i think recognizing your luck and being grateful are the actions that to me are the most powerful things you can mm. do fantastic well, thank you so much for your time. Great. You've been very generous. It was a real pleasure, Josh. I appreciate it. Thanks for your thank great you. questions and for your enthusiasm for my book. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Well, 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 here we are at the end. Thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Renaissance Life. And thanks again to Kevin Kelly for taking the time to chat with me. As mentioned, you can find links discussed in the show notes or at renaissancelife.com slash kk. If you'd like to download an action guide featuring question prompts and action steps based on this episode, go to renaissancelife.com and join. Until next time. Mm-hmm.